Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Jane Adams Resource Corporation provides free manufacturing training in welding, computerized machining, and mechanical assembly. Each training program is integrated with support services, including financial literacy, employment coaching, and job placement assistance. Training is available in the Ravenswood, Austin, and Chatham neighborhoods of Chicago. All training sites are currently enrolling new applicants. Visit jane-adams.org to sign up for an application to learn more about how to start your new career today. That's jane-adams-a-d-d-a-m-s.org. Hey everybody, how's it going? Your Ben Jarofsky Show for Tuesday, January 18th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A-V as in victory. S. K-Y. It is Tuesday, January 18th, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today in the program, the long-awaited return of the one, the only... Troy LaRavier. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Les Gropstein Tuesday, and here's why. The great Les Gropstein uh, died on Sunday at age 69. I want to offer my condolences to his family. Uh, now, I know this is a political talk show, and uh, I realize that there's a good chance that the political geeks and junkies who uh, listen to this show have absolutely no idea who Les Grobstein is. In fact, if you are below the age of, say, 50 and you're a political junkie and you're a lefty, I can guarantee you do not know who Les Grobstein is. So you go, Ben, why are you spending so much time talking about a guy that nobody knows? And the answer to that is that Les Grobstein was one of the great Chicago characters that I ever had the fortune to meet uh, and spend time with. Uh, And he's sort of a a singular Chicago character. And when I say that, it's like everybody's like, oh, there's only one like it. But in reality, I guess he's more prototypical of Chicago characters uh, that I've met down through the years. And here's the thing about Les Grobstein that you should know. Uh, He was a sports character geek and proud of it. The man loved sports. And I understand that. I have my sports obsessions as well. Uh, I diversify it into 
politics, my obsessions and uh, movies to some degree. A less move from sports uh, into pop music, 60s and 70s, but not really much anything else. Les was a sports geek. And I guess you should also add this. He was a radio geek. He loved radio. So he was a throwback to the time when radio dominated uh, as the chief medium in the city of Chicago, one of them. And we had icons in radio. Larry Lujak. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about here, ladies and gentlemen. This is old people stuff. Uh, and... Um, so Les Grobstein came, uh, what, he graduated from high school in 1969 and uh, w- worked his way up uh, to WLS, which was a huge achievement for him. Uh, he was the uh, sports guy at WLS, and they used to make fun of him all the time. Larry Lujak and Tommy Edwards used to make fun of the guy mercilessly. And he was just because he was just, like the like I said, the quintessential sports nerd who knew absolutely way too much about sports and cared too much about it and was obsessive in his recitation about it, almost Rain Man-like in his, uh, in his knowledge of every kind of piece of trivia. And so ultimately, uh, he found his way, a perfect slot. Uh, he would be the one to five in the morning talk show host on a sports radio. One to five in the morning. Who the hell is listening to sports talk between one and five? You know who? Me, when I'm in a car driving. <laughs> and I'd be listening to less, going on and on about sports trivia. And he like everything connected to everything else. And I understand how your brain works, Les Grobstein, because mine works much the same way. You start talking about A, that reminds you of B, you go to C, you go to Dixie, you know, you're in G-H-I-J-K. Wow, just pulled that one out. And you know who else? Mine works like that. Questlove. I'm now going to draw a connection between Questlove and Les Grobstein. Questlove, of course, as Dennis knows, is the drummer for the Roots uh, and um, like a superstar in the music scene. He also uh, is an, a, like an obsessive brainiac who collects all kinds of information about music and other things, not just music, mainly music, but movies pop culture in general and politics. He put it together in his book that I'm uh, reading right now. Like it's at one year by one year. So like he'll go 1973 and I'll ha- list all the things that happened in 1973. And then he'll write an essay in which every song that he analyzes is connected to another song, to another political event, to a movie, to protest, to what have you. And it's like, wow, this man's mind is really a brilliant thing. It just leaps from one thing to the other, and he sees the connection, the total universal connection. And that was Les Grabstein only in the world of sports. So we'd be talking about 1969 Cubs, let's say, and that would remind him about his roommate and the day he went to the game with his roommate and who they sat in the bleachers with and how that guy uh, was wearing a certain kind of T-shirt, and that T-shirt was... Uh, emblematic of what was going on in the 60s at the time, et cetera, and so forth. Everything was connected. And he was mocked. Les Grabstein was routinely mocked by other sports writers. Like, oh, my God. And you know why they mocked him? Because he was, they were more like him uh, than they would ever want to admit. You know, that's the, they were more like Les Grabstein, but they didn't want to admit they were like Les Grabstein. So they made fun of him. Like, oh, well, I'm cool. I'm not like Les. 
It was funny. I would hear a sports writer going, Les Grobstein goes to all the sporting events. I saw him, and then he would start rattling off some, like, random minor sporting events that he'd seen Les Grobstein at. And I'm like, hey, dude, you were at that sporting event, too. Why are you any better than Les Grobstein? Everybody wants to be cool by picking on the guy who's openly not cool. It's kind of like why Chicagoans hated Jerry Krause so much, because they wanted, like, Michael Jordan to like them. And they knew Michael Jordan didn't like Jerry Krause. Anyway, Les Grabs and I was fortunate enough to spend some time with him. And back in 1997, I wrote a profile for the reader. Uh, and we spent a lot of time together hanging out. We drove around town. He was showing me where he grew up and uh, where we went to his Avon Steuben high school. We bumped into the basketball coach. Remember that? Uh, it was just great hanging with Les. The guy never ran out of things to say, to talk about connections politically. He had some politics, uh, he was uh, definitely to the right of me, that's for sure, when it came to politics. But he was basically a Democrat. He was just an old school, love Mayor Daly Democrat. I was never attracted to Mayor, any of the Dailies for that matter. So I couldn't really relate to Les on that front. But uh, we shared a love for sports. And um, it's kind of sad that he's gone. I used to love, I guess, for when I'm driving at 2 in the morning, for whatever reason, and I flick on uh, the sports radio, I will not hear Les Grobstein going on and on about the Bulls or, or the Bears or the Cubs or the Sox, and I will miss that greatly. Uh, rest in peace, Les Grobstein. All right, before we um, uh, bring Troy LaRavier on, really happy to have he's coming back. Just want to talk a little bit about local politics. This story broke. And uh, the story is that Aurora Mayor has jumped in the race. That's Richard Irvin. That story, uh, we've been talking about that for a long time. Have a little fun with that one. Richard Irvin has jumped in the race. He's the uh, the mayor of Aurora. Uh, and clearly, he's Kenny G's candidate. Uh, Dennis and I have been talking about this for a long time. Kenny G is looking for someone, anyone to run against uh, J.B. Pritzker. He feels that the candidates, well, I don't know if he uh, feels this way. We suspect that he feels uh, that the candidates in the race are a little too flaky, uh, are just a little too right-wing uh, to win in the state of Illinois, a little too MAGA in the state of Illinois. Well, and a little so too he, downstate, let's be honest. Say that again? A little too downstate, let's be honest. A little too downstate. You're right. There's that bias. <laughs> Although Raybine's not downstate. I mean, you break it down, really. The only guy downstate is... Well, no, there's two. Jesse Sullivan, downstate by way of Northern California. Uh, and, um, of course, uh, our favorite candidate, Darren uh, D.B. Bailey, uh, the hog farmer, who's not really a hog farmer, but <laughs> for the purposes of our show. I'm sure he's uh, farmed a few hogs in his career. <laughs> Wait, what's the line? Who's, who's going to feed them hogs? hogs? Not even our line, by the way. I thought it was Dennis's line, and I, I heard Norm McDonald say, uh, hey, wait a minute. It's my tribute to Norm McDonald. Very subtle tribute to Norm McDonald. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, Darren Bailey is the one downstate, the main downstate guy, uh, and he took the stand against Pritchard all those uh, uh, months ago, back from 2019 on, uh, defied the governor on mass. And he's MAGA's man. It just seems to me so unfair, D, that MAGA's man who took the tough stances against Pritzker and the Democrats, not that I was with them in any way, but when he became inconvenient, here comes Kenny G, the billionaire, to shove him aside. 
Get out of the hey, race. Hey, friends, are you ready for government to dictate and control your lives? No, and, no, and I, I feel you, DB. I mean, on the other side of the, people like it happens to people like me on the on the Democratic side all the time. You know, you got these dams out there leading the charge against whatever right wing Republican nonsense are trying to shove down our throats. Then when it comes time for a primary, in come the Rahm Emanuel's of the world, the David Axelrod's of the world, the Barack Obama's of the world, and they position some, you know, real centrist <laughs> to run. The activists have been out there for months. Can't win. Oh, you can't win with that lefty stuff. We got to bring in a centrist. Oh, that's worked really well for the Democratic Party. Anyway, so what's happening sort of on the uh, on the Republican side of things, Kenny G has uh, got his guy, Mayor Irvin, from Aurora. And um, just to make sure, <laughs> this is so classic Republicans, that you don't think he's too liberal, even though he's voted in the Democratic primaries, like three out of the last four Democratic primaries. I think that I'm doing it off the top of my head. They uh, have him tag team with uh, Avery Bourne, who's a um, state rep uh, from downstate, and she is militantly uh, anti-abortion. I know that because Terry Cosgrove immediately sent out a piece, uh, a uh, an email reminding us, personal packs Terry Cosgrove, uh, who's been leading the fight for abortion rights in the state going back to the 80s. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's how you have to play the game in the Republican Party. You got to let everybody know, no matter where you are in that spectrum, you are militantly against abortion rights. And so that's the message they're sending out right now. And somehow or other, I don't know, uh, Irvin is going to be more, what, more acceptable to a suburban swing voter than Darren D.B. Bailey? He's tag team with a militantly anti-abortion activist or state rep. That's going to be more acceptable to a swing voter in suburban DuPage County or Cook County? I don't know. Maybe with Kenny G's millions behind him, he will be. But then again, Kenny G might have done some wonders for Darren Bailey if he put millions behind him. And by the way, Dennis will appreciate this. No sooner had the Republicans announced that Kenny G had sort of decided, uh, decided that um, – Mayor Irvin was the candidate to go to. JB drops. What was it? Ninety million? Ninety million dollars, D. <laughs> what a state. Well, at least JB's got the guts to put his name on the ballot. You know, I know it's a battle of billionaires, but at least JB puts his name on the ballot. Come on, Kenny G. That's hiding it. behind hiding behind Irvin. That, That's what first I've been saying. Run, you know. He runs the real MAGA guy out of the race or tries to run him out of the, the race, DB, Darren Bailey. Uh, and uh, and that he's too chicken to run himself. Mm-hmm. Man, what a party, the Republican Party. And by the way, before I forget, there's another candidate in the race, and we've been negligent in not reporting this, D. And that, of course, is uh, Mr. Cow. Uh, man, cow is. It's awesome. the butter cow, which has nine hearts to represent the nine essential nutrients in milk. That's right. It's made entirely out of butter, and it, you know it's a state fair tradition since at least 1922. 
Okay, not butter cow, but man cow, but same sort of family, the cow yeah, family. Me, I can't hear you guys. Troy Ravier has joined us, and um, Troy uh, seems to be having a little difficulty <laughs> setting things up. Can you hear us? Yep. All right. All right. Troy, just say my name is Troy123, just to make sure we got you. My name is Troy, and one, two, three. Boom. Okay. My name is the old Troy. days. One, two, three. My name is Troy. One, two, three. <laughs> Wait, in the old days, I used to ask you to recite poetry or rap. Uh, so, D. Mic check, and I would go microphone check. One, two, what is this? The five foot is headed for the roughneck business. Like, it's stuck in my head. Every time I hear the word mic check, I go to that Tribe Called Quest album, Low End Theory. Um, and that's the first song. That's actually the first line on the album. That's a classic hip hop album. But by the way, D, were we recording all that? Yeah. All right. <laughs> that was beautiful stuff, man. All right. Every time I hear the word microphone check, I go to that five dog line from Tribe Called Quest every single time. <laughs> by the way, I, I mentioned this before you came on the show and before uh, we um, take the deep dive in the political issues of the day. I was thinking of you. Because I've been reading a book by Questlove. Now, Questlove's your generation. Yeah, I think he's the same age that you are. Uh, and uh, as, uh, as such, it's a musical generation. You know, Troy, um, to put it mildly, I'm not very well versed in uh, uh, music of your generation, to put it mildly. But Questlove, his brilliance, and I call it brilliance, his genius. He has the ability, Troy, to absorb so much music in his brain. And he, it's not just music of your generation or his generation or subsequent hip hop generations. Music from the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, jazz. He'll like hear a track and it'll connect, uh, let's say, Miles Davis to a tribe called Quest uh, with a little stopover with uh, Sly and the Family Stone and Led Zeppelin and Stevie Wonder. I mean, the whole universe is in this man's brain. And I just love the trips he goes on. And he's also political. He, he has some politics and pop culture in there. So he, in, in some ways, his brain reminds me of yours. And I urge you to check out this book uh, by Questlove. Well, I appreciate That's a huge compliment, brother. I appreciate it. You know, Questlove, you know, he's, you know, he's a drummer for the roots, but he's a DJ. And so as a DJ, he has a vast collection of music. And not just has it, but he has to consistently... Uh, curated. Um, and so I would imagine he got a lot of the, the knowledge that he has about music from just his just needing to be a good DJ. Yeah, uh, that and though there is just something about his brain. And he uh, is and extremely it, smart. Yeah. Yeah. It's just his brain works in different ways. And in this book, what he does is he he he'll, it does it year by year. So it'll be he starts with the year he was born, uh, 1970. Uh, and it's just like all the events, political, pop culture, and music that happened that year. And then he just goes on riffs, and I'm just loving it. I I, I won't even read it straight through, uh, Troy. I'll read like a chapter a day because I just want to really savor it. You know what I mean? And then I listen to the songs that he refers to. Like, you just, I just encouraging everybody to check it out. All right. Let's and he's get a huge Prince fan. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> he loves Prince. Oh like my me. goodness. <laughs> oh, is that Prince? Is that who that is on that? That is Prince. Troy Ravier loves Prince, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I, 
and uh, even more than I do. Uh, so, all right, before we get too far afield, I know we have to talk uh, Chicago schools and Chicago school politics, et cetera, and so forth. But I want to start uh, with Martin Luther King with you. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, and I have watched systematically over the last, oh God, several years, but it's really picking up how the right wing in this country, how MAGA in this country has co-opted Martin Luther King. And when I say co-opted Martin Luther King, they have taken Martin Luther King and reduced him to one sentence in one speech. And that speech is the I have a dream speech. And that sentence has to do uh, with the, the content of a man's character, not the color of his skin, as though he, Martin Luther King, was their ally in proclaiming that white people are somehow being picked on right now. And I'm watching this, Troy, and it's not just white MAGA people, but they get black people to say it as well. And it was it was a crescendo yesterday uh, in uh, with Martin Luther King's birthday, which, of course, the MAGA antecedents fought like hell against. Just want to point that out. And I've got many, 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 many feelings about this, but I really I want to hear your thoughts on how Martin Luther King is being used politically by the right wing in America today. The right wing, I haven't decided where this falls. So it falls in one or two places, right? The, the, the Republican Party and the forces behind it in general are very effective messengers, far more effective than those of us who are on the left. They take it far more seriously. We, and I've said this before, you know, those of us on the left, we try to live our values. Those on the right promote their values, right? And when that's, when I say promote, I mean, they do serious research on messaging, messaging strategy, psychology, and try to perfect language that, and approaches to language that turn a critical mass of people who are undecided toward them. Uh, those of us who are on the left, we just try to get out there and live our values with, with whatever haphazard messaging, especially the progressives. Like you got the, you got the Democrats and you got the Democrats try a little bit. The progressives don't even try to message. <laughs> Like, and, I, and it's, it's, it's probably an overstatement because there are those who are who do approach it in, in a thoughtful way. But for the most part, pro progressives, particularly those who call themselves radicals, don't even like message from the perspective of seeing that there's a group of people out there that we need to pull toward us. They message like they're talking to themselves, mm -hmm. like they're talking to other progressives. Um, and so this is a perfect example of it, right? You want to pull people who are not with you to your side. So Republicans look, hmm, who do we absolutely hate? Who do we absolutely not value? Who, who, who do we, like, who are, who are we the antithesis to? Oh, Martin Luther King. Who do our allies or people who are the exact opposite of what we believe believe in? Oh, they're likely to believe in King. All right, let's start there. And then let's find some piece of what he says that those people on the left or people who might be middle of the road can latch on to and then just use that to bring them toward us 
completely miss all the context, <laughs> right? Like that's them, and they're extremely good at it. Um, and then there are some things that they do that I just kind of go, "This is a distraction. <laughs> this is some bullshit distraction. I don't even want to deal with this. Like we're giving them more power by just talking about this insanity." Um, and this is kind of like a it's 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 actually a combination of both to me. Um, it is a perfect example of how they think about pulling people toward their sides. We're not trying to talk to people who already believe what we believe. We want to talk to people and pull people who don't believe what we believe by anchoring our message in something that they kind of believe. <laughs> Am I making sense? Uh, sort of. The part that I want you to uh, follow up on, uh, there's m- many parts of it that I want you to follow up on, but I'll just start with this. Maybe we should just ignore them. And I think about that. Should just right. ignore what Mag is up to. That I don't know how successful that is as a, a tactic, because if you ignore them, if you don't resist, if you don't fight back, then they just are, can proceed unimpeded pushing the conversation further and further right until it becomes normalized, accepted that Martin Luther King somehow or other symbolizes right wing America. I don't know if that's a good idea. Now, again, like I said, it's a combination of both, right? To some extent, I think the more we pay attention to it, the more life we give it. Like, at least let it get its own life. <laughs> See if it can get its own life before start drawing attention to it. You know, some dude puts a freaking mega hat on the king statue. Whatever. Right? <laughs> Whatever, man. <laughs> but, you know, if it starts getting a life, or, hey, how about we actually promote what King actually said instead of repeating the same damn speech, you know, every, um, you know, January. How about we start playing Where Do We Go From Here? You know, where King really started breaking down in 1967, his his philosophy, his values, where he talked about uh, the media uh, or when he uh, did Beyond Vietnam, particularly the second Beyond Vietnam speech, where he really broke down how the media can turn your enemy into your friend or make you think your friend is your enemy and your friend, your enemy is your friend. Or where do we go from here where he really began to start talking about the economic philosophy behind his program and how the limitations of all of this sort of nonviolent integration and this need to focus in on an economic, or let's focus in on the actual quote where he's the content of your character, right? Like this, the whole thing is based on the quote, like the judge by the content of your character, not the color of your skin, right? I've never seen an effective response to the right trying to co-op that. And it's an extremely effective response. Like, but what we're not, we're not trying to focus on the color of your skin either. We're trying to focus on how you treated people based on the color of their skin. Right? We want to create policies that address how these, these people, not just how they're being treated in the past, but how they're being treated right now. Right? And then you know, argument's over. I've never heard that. In all of my years of going back, all, I mean, they've been having this argument since Backey in California. You know, the Supreme Court affirmative action case. They've been saying this since then, and I've never heard it. Like, this is differential treatment. This is, let's, let's take into account how these people are suffering right now based on how you have been treating them because of the color of their skin. So, yeah, we believe it too. 
You shouldn't be treating people based, a certain way based on the color of their skin. But you certainly should take into consideration the racist actions that have been hurled at them and the, 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 the racism they've been subjected to for 400 years and are still being subjected to today. You know, um, yeah, I think, and, 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 and that's, a, that's a, another part of how the, the left has sort of failed in its messaging. I would have... I would have been like, so we're gonna we're gonna consider people who are black. I'd be like, we're gonna consider people who have been the historical victims of racism. <laughs> See what I'm saying? People for whom the data right now, the data right now today say that banks are treating are, are treating them in a racist fashion based on the color of their skin. We're gonna have a policy for people who have been who are who have been and are today treated in a racist fashion, in a biased fashion. For whom there is data to show it, that's what we're gonna do. And I said, no, we're just gonna let this. We're gonna create this policy for black people, right? If you if you understand that 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 way you word the policy is also a messaging opportunity. So every time the policy comes up, you're not talking about black people. You're talking about the victims of racism, and you get to say that over and over and over again every time the policy comes up. Like that's a messaging opportunity that we've been missing for fifty years. Yeah, we've missed a lot of opportunities over uh, 50 years. Uh, that's just one of them. Uh, by the way, when you were going on that riff uh, and you were talking about uh, the uh, racist past that is still very much present that people have to deal with, I thought about another argument uh, that MAGA makes. We may have talked about this in, the, uh, in a previous conversation, Troy, and that is that um, it's unfair uh, to white kids to teach about the racist past because they'll feel bad about them. So I'm not making this up, Troy. This is an argument uh, that MAGA puts forth. Uh, and um, they put it for it's, it's an argument that's being raised in a lot of suburban schools. And so what I was at, going to ask you is, as the uh, uh, president of the Chicago Principals Association, you have contact with principals throughout the city of Chicago. Are you aware of any attempts anywhere in the city of Chicago to advance this notion? I, I would it would seem like it would be a preposterous notion to advance in Chicago, but maybe it's going on somewhere that I'm unaware of. So have you seen this kind of uh, reaction in anywhere in the city? Um, the closest I can remember is. Um, and this was before this all this happened was um, when there was a, a guy that spoke at a north side school, I think it was Decatur. Uh, and he came with a, a message around police brutality and the principal, there was a big backlash against the principal for allowing him to speak. But in terms of the danger to white kids, no, it's not a danger to white kids. It's a danger to rich kids, right? Because that's what racism is a tool of. Racism is not a tool to benefit white people. Racism is a tool to screw over working poor white people, particularly and middle-class white people, by having them align themselves to, to the wealthy against their own interests, right? That's what racism is. It was a tool that was used to separate and pit working class and poor white people against working class and poor black people when they're natural allies. And so teaching this kind of, especially when you situate, when you teach about racism is situated in its purpose, right? If you're just talking about racism in general and you don't go back to the whole reason racism was created, then... May I still argue against it, but but when you situate your conversation about racism and the fact that wealthy 
Europeans tried to pit poor Europeans against poor black people and divorce them and pit them against their natural allies. And having a conversation about this will help white people and white students not grow up um, with this mentality that where they align themselves with people who don't have their best interests and then pit themselves against people whom if they who are their natural allies. Right? I don't know anything else that would help white kids more than teaching them about racism and its roots and why it exists. So that you can help these poor white kids see that they have been taught for centuries to work against their own best interests and in the interests of the rich who dominate them. And it's still going on very much so uh, in this country. By the way, if you started teaching that, they'd accuse you of class bias. <laughs> well, uh, if, they, if they did that, then help. I, that's, I, that's one I'd own. I don't mind saying yes. I have a bias for working people and people at the people in the middle and bottom of this. Actually, I have a bias toward 90% of the population. <laughs> I can't, I can't lose. Yes, I have a bias toward 90 to 95% of the American public. <laughs> right? When, when it's a racial bias, you split us in half. Yeah. Thirds. <laughs> if it's a class bias, hell, I'll take that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm with the 95% or the 99%. I think it's 99. I think that uh, it's the 99% actually, so uh, 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 fair enough, uh, fair enough. All right, um, let's move on uh, to Chicago. And, Troy, I've not talked to you in a while, so I've not uh, exposed you to my thoughts on this subject. And I watched with a mixture of horror and disbelief the way Lori Lightfoot and her health commissioner responded to the concerns, let's just put it that way, the concerns that teachers and principals and parents and staffers at CPS had regarding COVID protocol and how to protect the public from a very scary disease. I watched in disbelief as they turned it into a union negotiating session in which everybody in the city of Chicago was put on the sidelines, principals included, while Lori's lawyers battle Stacey Davis Gates and Jesse Sharkey and their lawyers uh, in hours and hours of negotiation. And Troy, I'm like, this is something really weird about Chicago, where we take <laughs> something as basic as a safety health issue and turn it into like a way to perpetuate a fight with the teachers union. And so this is my view of it. Uh, I'd love to get your uh, take on it, on what has been going down in this city for the last month or so regarding COVID in the school. So take it away. So this one is pretty complex. I'll try to divide it up into segments and then build it up together and, and take everybody along with me. So let me say this. Um, I asked our principals, do you have ventilation issues in your schools that would make you hesitant to declare your schools are safe? 40%, 41, if I remember correctly, said they do. 
that they would not feel comfortable telling the parents and students that their buildings are safe because of their ventilation issues. And those include HVAC, uh, lack of filters, filters or air purifiers, lack of filters for air purifiers, lack of air purifiers or air purifiers that are not approved for the size of the classroom that they're in. You know, and, and of course, HVAC systems and windows that don't open. 42% have one or more of those issues. Windows that don't open, did you say? Did yeah. I hear that correct? Okay, windows that it. do not open, that won't crack, create some ventilation where the HVAC's not working right. Okay. Um, so 40, 40, excuse me, 41% said yes, that they had issues that would make them feel uncomfortable saying that their buildings are safe. Then I asked... Um, are you having uh, staffing issues that would make you, that again, would make you feel like you don't have the adequate supervision to declare that buildings are safe, that your school is safe? Because, you know, this is all about mitigation issues. So one, one mitigation issue is ventilation, right? Another mitigation issue is masking and proper social distancing. When you're dealing with kids and masking and social distancing, what do you, in addition to the, the basic equipment, you need supervision. The kids are going to take them off repeatedly. They're going to not social distance repeatedly. And so you must have adequate supervision in place to consistently remind and enforce the mitigation policies that students are supposed to be following. Uh, our principals don't even have enough staff to keep kids safe from what they told me um, during regular times, let alone uh, these times during a pandemic. 50% of them had these kinds of staffing issues um, to the extent where they said their buildings are not safe. Then I asked another mitigation question. Um, Is your building cleaned thoroughly enough and consistently enough to the extent where you would feel comfortable telling your parent community, your school community, that your building is safe. Right? Only 40, this one was 42% said no, they did not. Now remember, these are principles. Like they have to show up to the buildings whether it's open or not. And so this ridiculous argument about, oh, you just don't go to work, doesn't apply to them. They have to go into the building every single day, whether the building is closed or not. And these people who want their students in class, want their teachers there, are saying, we don't have the staffing, ventilation, or the cleanliness, which is also related to custodial staffing and supervision. To keep that, to, to the, we don't have that in place to the extent where we feel safe. We don't, well, we feel our buildings are safe to be occupied by students and staff. Now, so that's the baseline from how I'm going to go back and approach your question. So now I'm looking at CTU and I'm looking at CPS and, you, and reduce it. To some extent, you know, CTU fell into this trap, right? And then they let Lightfoot do this because they did not create a set of demands that could capture the public imagination that they could. This is up. This became about mitigation numbers and statistics and thresholds, right? Nothing that the public could really galvanize itself behind, right? You got, you can galvanize your, I mean, I had a principal tell me when, 
when her, she said when her school was so damn filthy, she said that when her students walked through her building, she actually told an LSC that she was talking at an LSC meeting. When our students walk in this building and see this filth, they have to believe that nobody loves them. Now, you can galvanize the public around that. You can galvanize the public around things they can see and picture and a story. There's no story behind this. I mean, it's important issues that they were fighting for. But you're not going to galvanize public support behind this. You'll get the people who are already on your side. right? And, of course, that's what they got. They got the people who are already on their side. They had, if you look at what the principals were saying about the schools, they had, the teachers had a strong basis for their position. They were not safe. Right? But the way they communicated about it, it just was not effective. The demands were not worded in such a way and framed in such a way where the public could actually see what was happening in schools and was specific enough. Like, hey, get all the buildings clean, fix these ventilation issues, right? Concrete. You know, I think if something, and this is just me talking off the top of my head, you know, we could craft demands that were a lot more specific and could even capture the public imagination even better than what's coming off the top of my head right now. But I felt like the demands that they put forth played into this sort of BS negotiation back and forth behind the scene that none of us could really feel. And, you know, except if we were already on a side, right? And then everybody else just sort of in the middle confused. And again, we failed to... This is against a progressive because that's typically folks who run CTU, you know, on the progressive end of the political spectrum. They fail to reach and sort of look beyond themselves and what kind of demand. This is a messaging opportunity. This is an opportunity to help the public see the filth in these schools, see the ventilation issues in these schools, see that we don't have. This is an opportunity to see that. And it became about, you know, opening and closing metrics. I thought it was just, a, you know, they had a good basis for their demands in terms of the filth and the ventilation. It just wasn't communicated, and they played right in the life of hand, I thought. All right. So that was a, uh, a very telling recitation about the messaging issues. But I'm going to go back to my question, and let's put messaging aside. And let's put the fact that it became a political fight between two forces aside. And my question is this. What is it about this city that the mayor of the city of Chicago does not feel obligated to guarantee that people who go into public school buildings are protected? What is it about this city that reduces something as basic and essential as protecting the health concerns of people who go into public buildings? Just reducing that to a political fight in which we determine whether one side is messaging is more effective than the other side or whether one side is of uh, twisting to their advantage the negotiations and the media's uh, analysis of what's going on. What is it about the city that doesn't give a damn about 
the kids who go to our public school. This is the part that I can't understand, Troy. And after all these years of living in Chicago and writing about it, that they, on their own, did not demand that there be masks on their sc- in the schools. On their own, that Lori Lightfoot and her health commissioner did not demand that there be testing of kids in, in the schools. On their own, without having to be involved in negotiation. Why didn't they insist on this on their own? This is what I'm struggling with. So I'm going to introduce a new factor into this. I still hold firm to my first response because I, I, I like that, that the messaging is part of the pressure needed to make them do it because they're never going to do it on their own. Wow. Right. So there's the assumption that they're not going to do it. But now I'm going to go into what the, the core of your question, which is why they don't do it. This city is ran by interests that make money when classrooms lose money. This system, the people behind, that were behind Daily, that were behind Emmanuel, that are behind Lightfoot, you know, are a collection of interests that make money when schools lose money. I can give example after example from these toxic loans that were taken out and the banks that were behind them and how they were behind our last man and behind this man and who profited, who didn't, how schools lost, how, and how they won. We can go with the custodial company right now that's getting millions and hundreds of millions of dollars because schools are losing custodial staffing, which costs money. <laughs> and that enables them to make them. The filthier our schools are, the richer they get. Um, the insane interest payments right now that are diverting so much public education money, again, toward these banks. And then there's the myriad of small, sort of medium-sized players that are getting money off of different kinds of contracts related to uh, technology in the classroom, um, or the use of this particular technological system versus that one. Like, you know, I think the Quazo, remember the board member Quazo who had a tech company that was getting filthy rich off of CPS, offering BS, right? This city, right, the people behind this mayor and every mayor before her until you stop at Harold, right, is being ran by people who make money when classrooms lose money and when you got, so all of the things you're saying that Lori Lightfoot should be demanding cost money. All of the things that you say, why isn't she demanding on her own? Because the people who are behind her will lose money if the schools get those things. That's less money they can steal from our classrooms. Is a, there is a gravy train of legitimate legalized theft. <laughs> That's what CPS is. And it's being ran by people who want to divert as much of their money towards their campaign donors and economic interests that are behind them. The folks who are behind the Chicago Public Education Fund, you look at their board, 
These are people who make CPS policy. These are the people who train the leaders who then get inserted in the CPS to do their bidding. Right? Those folk make money when classrooms lose money. So you are never going to see a mayor that was put in office and supported by that group of interest demanding things for classrooms that cost money. Ever. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Wow. Uh, by the way, and I'm going to add to that, uh, our uh, tax increment financing program, the TIFs, which literally rake off <laughs> money that would otherwise go to the school, literally rake it off. And so uh, that's when we go back to my, so when we know that's the case, then there has to be a fight waged against that because they're never going to do it. And that's when we go back to our messaging strategy, our so the strategy for how we use people and resources to create pressure for these people to say yes when they want to say no, mm-hmm. right? Because that's all we have. So I guess I'm glad you pushed the question because I always start from the assumption that everything in my last answer is just ground zero. We all know that, but we all don't. So I'm glad you pushed me. <laughs> and so well, knowing that we have to figure out how do we launch massive campaigns, right? to force, to create pressure to make these people do what they don't want to do. And that always, in part, involves messaging, it involves strategy, it involves employing people and resources toward targets. You know how it works. Yeah. Well, no, I, uh, and, and, and when you talk about, and I understand what you're saying about uh, money spent on poor kids in poor schools is money that can't be spent on rich people. I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, and I understand like they under daily and, uh, uh, they push these f- crazy financial schemes where we borrow all this money and it pegs over the interest rates, uh, to wall street lenders. And that was money that was not going to the kids in the public schools. So uh, I understand that in this particular case, the federal government was underwriting the entire COVID battling protocol. They would buy the masks for you. They would supply the test for you. And the public schools and the mayor still did not take it. And the health commissioner, Troy, this is how twisted our city is. The health commissioner's message that she was putting out in the middle of all this was that the teachers are exaggerating the threat. That COVID is no worse than the flu. I'm like, whoa, that's the health commissioner. God damn. And they have the money, Troy. So I understand what you're saying. They have the money. Is it just that they've been so resistant to giving anything to the public schools for so long that they just continue to resist, even though they have the money to buy the masks? Yeah, that's CPS, man. They always, and the strange thing is, there's always just a little bit of truth behind their lies. (laughs) That's what makes their lies so effective. You know, one of the things they say all the time, for example, is, Schools can be safe when proper mitigation strategies are in place. They say that all the time. Well, that's true. Well, what they don't say is that proper mitigation strategies or the resources for proper mitigation strategies like staffing, like cleanliness and ventilation are not in place at most schools. They are some because, again, said 42 percent. So 60 percent were cool or 50 percent didn't have the um, staffing. So the other half were cool. But half the schools being unsafe is a big deal. Right. And they're not saying that part. Yeah. Probably mitigate. Yes. School is the best place for when they're safe. But half of them are not. Or this piece about COVID and the flu. I actually did some uh, dug into some CDC data about vaccination 
and death rates for vaccinated people. And, you know, I looked at, and I can't even remember the, the, the particular numbers right now, but it was like, um, it was like something like 16 out of every 100,000. Um, um, I can't even, if you had the, the flu, were, uh, were died. But for COVID, it was something like 300 or 400. So I'm like, well, obviously this is not <laughs> the same. But when you look at vaccinated folk, it is. When you look at vaccinated folks, the numbers of vaccinated people who get COVID, the death rates of folks who get vaccinated is around the same as the flu. But the problem, however, <laughs> everybody's not vaccinated. <laughs> right? Everybody's yeah. not vaccinated. Yeah. And so you can't have, you can't just be spouting stupid stuff like that without the other, like, so it's, it's like part A is true and then let me lie to you. <laughs> With part B. Yeah. Um. So that's my no, response. No, that's, <laughs> I hear you. I know. Uh, and 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 I know be I know what you're saying about the little kernel of truth uh, to what uh, it's not just um, CPS at City Hall as well. Always a little kernel of truth. They pepper their little uh, casserole of lies with a little little sprinkling of truth. And so if you're a reporter, you have to spend all your time separating the truth from the made up stuff, mm-hmm. and you can slowly lose your mind. Okay, because they got a whole battalion of uh, propagandists who just throw out, (laughs) throw out more casseroles of propaganda with a little sprinkling of the truth. And so then uh, how many conversations have I had with uh, parents who go, well, Ben, you have to admit. (laughs) And then they like zero in on whatever little sprinkling of the truth. I'm like, why are you even saying that? Yes. So, Troy, you're absolutely correct. Uh, if you're vaccinated, uh, yes, you have more protections against COVID than if you're unvaccinated. And the problem is that there's so many unvaccinated people in the system. So to go around saying, as the health commissioner, the health commissioner said, it's no worse than the flu is to like miss a huge chunk of the issue. And I have to say it must be willfulness because I would ha- I would believe a doctor is too smart to opine something so foolish. And we have uh, schools where less than 5% of the kids are vaccinated. Wow. We have schools where less than 5% of the kids are vaccinated. So for any public health official to come out and say we need to create district policy based on a statistic that assumes everyone's vaccinated when we have a school and many schools where less than 5% are vaccinated, uh, it's reckless, it's irresponsible, and frankly, I think it should be grounds for imprisonment. <laughs> wow. Uh, but you're absolutely right about um, messaging. And uh, it, it, I, I see it in the letters to the editors, or I see it in these uh, interviews that the various newspapers do with parents. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. This is uh, one of our favorite talks with the media. I've been teasing the Tribune and Block Club and the Sun-Times. It seems like they go to the same, like they get these parents on the north side of Chicago. uh, And they're like, I am just so sick and tired of CTU. And they're just that union. And I'm ready to leave the city. And I always love they're going to go to Evanston, which, by the way, has the... All the protocols that CTU was demanding and begging and pleading for. I just want to point that out. I'm going to go to Avonston. 
You know what I'm saying, Troy? That's how they, so what's your attitude? Do you think uh, when you, what are all the, what's involved there when the, the media goes and tracks down some North side and you know, the North side parents, because I just want to point this out. Troy LaRavier was a principal at an elementary school uh, on the North side of the, of Chicago and Lakeview. So Troy, what's your sense of what's going on here when the media tracks down uh, North side parents who are outraged at CTU? So I want to try not to give you a long winded response. <laughs> um, segregation serves a purpose. Segregation serves a purpose. You know, when, because, you know, it's typically white North Side parents, more affluent parents who don't live in, 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 or are not exposed to the conditions of schools that serve kids that are less advantaged than, than they are. So they know what it's like in their school. They don't know what it's like across the city. But again, I think this is another failure of ours. Right? When segregation was created originally, right? The, the ideal when racism was when racism was created originally in this country, when it was developed, the ideal they knew they had to tell a story about a one group of people and repeat those the lies in that story relentlessly to turn the other group against them. So black people are this, that, all this negative sh- sh- crap, right? But just telling the lies isn't enough. You have to segregate them so that you don't come face to face with the contradictions of those lies, <laughs> right? You have to segregate them so that they can't see that the lie is a lie. Because if you keep interacting with these, wait, wait a minute, these people are brilliant. Wait a minute, it's just like me, right? You have to segregate them. And so it served that purpose then, and it says it serves the same purpose today, right? So white North Side parents typically have no idea what the experience is like in many of the schools that justify some of CTU's positions, right? Again, filthy uh, ventilation issues and staffing issues where you can't even, you know, supervise kids. That's real. White North Side parents typically have no sense that that's happening. And I think it's a, there's, a, there's a failure on our part to make connections between these parents. When I was principal at Blaine, for example, it's a majority, I, was, I was an assistant principal at a majority black school in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. Then I became principal at a majority white school in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city. And I never forgot what it was like. And so I remember when they did, I don't know if you remember, they did a February budget cut. It was crazy. In the middle of the year, they just slashed budgets. Because they were saying they were going to base the budget oh, yeah. on money that they wanted from Springfield but hadn't gotten yet. And so we took a big cut. And so my parents um, and at Blaine raised 150 grand, mm. just bam, to, to make up for what we lost. And I told those parents, I said, look, I, I, I will support this fundraiser, but I, I have a, a condition. I want 10% of everything you raise to go to the school Maneer on the uh, west side, excuse me, in Cabrini Green, what's left of Cabrini Green, right? Because I want them to begin to understand, right, and associate. Like, you're not just, you don't just live, we don't live in Blaine, we live in Chicago, right? And there are things happening around this city. There are places that aren't able to raise 150 grand on the spot to make up for what they lost. 
And we had just, I, me and the principal at Manier just happened to create a partnership thanks to our network. We had a great network chief, Ernesto Matias, who's with ISBE now. Um, and he created that part. He sort of encouraged us to, to partner with schools that, and we, and when we did that. And so the whole point, though, was to help the parents at this affluent Northside school to see beyond their own school, see beyond the conditions and see, like, everything's not like it is here. I mean, theoretically, you know what, but seeing it and feeling is a whole different thing. And I think we're able to do that. You know, Lori's able to do that in terms of going out and grabbing somebody from an affluent school because that segregation still exists and that as a result, that disconnection between the conditions in their school and the conditions in everybody else's school are still there. Um, so that's my, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's my reflection. No, absolutely. Segregation. I always tease myself. I'm the last person in the city of Chicago who believes in integration. And in my lifetime, I've watched the city completely abandon uh, any even uh, meager attempt at integration. You know, they they had magnets. They created magnet schools to avoid a, uh, a mandate that they had to desegregate the schools, citywide busing. So they came up with a voluntary plan. This is when you were probably a kid, Troy, in in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, under Daly, they got rid of uh, the uh, component that the goal of integrating schools. And so now you have magnet schools that don't integrate. You know, you don't have the busing. You don't pay for the busing. They take a kid from the south side and bring him up to the north side. So, yeah, you're absolutely correct. We have the city that we created. Just goes back to your original point. Uh, This is the city that we created. And um, so I hear you. Uh, Now, let me ask you this question. One thing uh, I've heard a lot from parents on the north side is, well, if our school is okay, because we bought the masks. Yes, it's true uh, that Lori has not purchased, Lori Lightfoot is not, uh, and her sidekicks at the uh, Board of Ed have not provided masks for poor schools on the South Side. But our school's okay. And our parents are vaccinated. And all kids, most of our kids above the age of, I don't know, 10 are vaccinated. So why can't we just go school by school and open them? you know, the safe schools and then close the other schools uh, and have them uh, go on um, remote learning. What's your response uh, to that suggestion? I can tell you that when I polled our principals on this question, I gave them two, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but I gave them two questions. I remember the general numbers and sort of where they leaned. One was, and this was in the heat of the works, the, the lockout, Lord, the Lori's lockout. Um, the first question was, schools should um, go remote, but those who are able, those who are able on a case-by-case basis should be allowed to return to in-person. Um, I think the response to that was 41% in favor or 40%. Some, it, was something, it was significantly below 50%. Then I asked the same question. I left the, the other part out. Schools should go remote. 
right? And then there was also, let me, let me represent this right. It was schools should go remote to give the district time to address mitigation issues. That's what it said. Mm-hmm. Schools should go remote to give the district time to address the ventilation, address the cleanliness, and address the staffing issue, right? And, um, but the first one had the caveat, schools that were ready could open. Then I asked the same question again without that caveat. And then the answer was something like uh, 65, 70% in favor. So it was principles of, so what it seemed to me that principles uh, were clearly not in favor of an option that highlighted this kind of inequity that would allow schools who were in well-resourced situations to open while others, it was kind of like this all or none mentality. We should all in solidarity. And again, there was still a significant portion, you know, the portion that voted against that wasn't, you know, small, it's like 30%, 30, 25%. So it was a significant portion that said, who voted against that one as well. But the majority uh, seemed to clearly indicate they wanted an all or nothing. We're all in this together approach to opening and closing schools. Well, I'm with them. Because if you're not all, if it's not at all in this together approach, we're just going to exacerbate uh, all the disparities that you've been talking about throughout this show. And I also, uh, yeah, I also have another perspective on it, though, because I think you could do it in that way with an intentional plan to highlight those disparities. Right? It is an opportunity if you had an intentional plan in place. To say, okay, yeah, we'll do it that way. Uh, but we're going to work our asses off to highlight the disparities that result so that we can put more pressure on the mayor to do something about these disparities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a legitimate, you know, perspective. I, I don't I don't know whether or not, I don't know which one I uh, uh, side on. I t- tend to side with the all or nothing, but I think there's some legitimacy in the idea of, all right, let's do that but with a plan to use the disparities to really highlight and put pressure on the mayor to, to address them. Well, that might actually in the long run be better because, you know, everybody going down doesn't really put pressure on the mayor to address anything except getting the schools back open. Yeah. Well, uh, I got to put it this way. It is a struggle. And I hate to sound so jaded, but it is a struggle just not just in the city, but nationwide, but I'm going to stick to Chicago. It is a struggle in Chicago to get people to do the right things on behalf of poor people. So if you think that highlighting the disparities that already exist is going to force the powers that be to give up the corporate financial interest that you talked about at the start of this show, I don't know. You get what I'm saying? I, I haven't seen much I'm evidence. I'm talking about a campaign. Not just, hey, here's this. But I'm talking about launching a campaign. Like, mm. highlighting, they, they'll never, they'll ne- when I say highlight, I mean highlight to the public. Right? Highlight and use that as an organizing tool to put pressure on these people. Reason will never work with these folks. Yes. Ever. So if, if, if that's what I sounded like. Uh, no. Yeah. Reason and compassion will never uh, work with them. Ever, and- ever, ever. <laughs> ever. Reason and compassion will not motivate the people of the city of Chicago, the powers to be, to do the right thing. It has no evidence of that. When Martin Luther King came to town, uh, they threw a rock and hit him in the head, and Mayor Daly and the powers to be could not get him out of town fast enough. 
Uh, all right. Now, uh, Troy, uh, I think of the model of Social Security before I leave this. I'm just going to say this. When you were talking, I was thinking of Social Security. And the reason why Social Security uh, is what they call it, the third rail of politics is because everyone gets it. Donald Trump gets Social Security. J.B. Pritzker gets Social Bruce Rauner gets Social Security. Ken Griffin gets Social Security. All those parents at Blaine School who are really wealthy, they get Social Security. You get what I'm saying? So <laughs> that's why I'm kind of more in the everybody's in the same boat uh, mentality uh, when it comes to these things. All right, let's talk about the Catholic schools for a moment and how uh, they're used uh, in situations like this. There's another thing I see in the media. Catholic schools are open. I hear this all the time. Catholic schools are open. So when they say that, it's, I don't know. What are people saying? Are they saying that? That COVID is not dangerous, that uh, unionized teachers are spoiled, that what we need. I mean, I'm not quite sure what people are saying, Troy, when they make such an emphasis on Catholic schools being open. So please help me out with this. So one, we have to think about what it means to be open. Because Catholic schools don't, aren't public entities. Right? They could be open with five kids in the classroom. You know, just like a lot of CPS. Like when CPS schools were open, that first day we did a survey of our principals. When they were open, a third of the kids didn't show up. Right, And so 100,000 kids still had no education. Right? And so, but... You know, I was able to poll our members to figure that out. CPS is slow to release data, but eventually, you know, you do a FOIA request for the attendance, you'll find out a month later, first day back, there were 100,000 kids out. Now, we're very fortunate in our circumstance that we can poll the people who lead the schools and get district-wide data, or at least a semblance of district-wide data. Uh, but you can't get that from these Catholic schools. How many kids show up in this classroom? How many times do they have to go remote? Right? They don't have to do that. It's just they're open. Right? And again, that's messaging. We're open. People are not going to ask what open means. People aren't going to ask about mitigation that's in place in these Catholic schools, what kind of outbreaks are and are not occurring. Right? They're just open. Um, and, of course, there's a messaging tactic to push against the public sector, to demonize public schools um, in general. I don't know if that's just... I mean, they'll demonize public schools and demonize the public sector union any chance they get. And that's an opportunity to do both without really having to explain themselves. And when I pulled up that data, so the numbers were 39% and 59% respectively. So 39, only 39% supported that proposal where it would allow schools to, who were ready to come back online while the others were remote. Uh, and 59% when we said everybody all or nothing, it was 59%. So I wanted to make sure I got that. Yeah, 39%. Point. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm i not surprised by that. Again, I think uh, if you're in Chicago public schools and you've had any kind of experience with it, you'll realize they'll let all those uh, poor schools remain closed or remote. And they'll let the planes of the world open up. Uh, that's that's our system. That's how that's – how, cynical people are who are those are the vote those are their voters right those are the people who are going to show up to the polls 
right? And that's who she's catering to. Those are voters. Those are her donors. That's where they come from. Uh, and she has to make them happy. Now, you could actually, what well, we could actually create a city and create a situation where and we don't need the city to do it. Hell, as a principal's association and hell, the teachers union, if they want to, we could create an environment that sort of crosses some of these bridges and breaks some of those boundaries down to sort of say, hey, Mr. So-and-so from Burley School who's leading the back-to-school movement, I want you to come over here and check out what's happening um, at this school on the south side where half the staff didn't show up because they're out for COVID protocols, right? And I want, I'm not saying you should change your message, but I'm not saying you should change your message in terms of schools should be, but I, 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 how do you craft, how do you change your message? How do you adjust your message so that it includes this reality, right? Um, I think that's possible, but that work is not being done. And that's some dangerous work to the powers that be. Connecting these people and helping them to understand each other. Hell, I have to do that with my own members. I have to help that 39% understand that other 61%. And so this all happened in a, uh, we had a, a Zoom meeting where there were almost 500 principals and eight assistant principals on the Zoom. And we were doing these polls live uh, because the district, they created this situation where in the meetings with the CEO, the CEO has these town halls. And typically people are not going to speak up against what the CEO wants. And so the people who are in the minority on one particular issue, whether well, they seem like the majority because they're the only voices being heard. And so unlike the CEO, I did a live poll so they could see how one another felt. And the people who felt like they were in the majority realized that they were not. It's the first time. It, and some of them were in disbelief. But then I said, you know what? Just because you're in a minority doesn't mean you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Like you, you are experiencing a particular circumstance in your school that makes you feel this way. And what I want you to understand is that your colleagues are feeling I have an entirely different experience. And I want you guys to connect to understand each other and then create a way forward that takes both circumstances into account. Right. I try to do that with my members, but we can also do that kind of work with parents to help them understand and advocate for each other. Absolutely. And it can work even, and I, I want to break from my general jaded uh, sentiment to just recount that uh, in the early days of ROM, which is already 10 years ago, good God, uh, right before I met Troy, uh, there was a uh, organization that emerged called raise your hand coalition. And they were basically North side parents of public school kids. Uh, and they wanted to be a force on behalf of their students. And I remember talking to a lot of these parents, and they were rookie parents. I call them rookie parents because their kids were in first grade and second grade, and they were just exposed to the public schools for the first time, Troy. And they were saying, we're not with the teachers' union. I remember them saying this. You know, we're Karen Lewis was the head of it. My beloved Karen Lewis was the head of the teachers' union. We're not with the teachers. There's a lot of problems with the teachers' union. We're representing the kids. Like somehow or other, the teachers' union didn't represent the kids. And Troy, I, I stayed in contact with many of these parents, most of the mothers, over the next few years. And guess what? Within three years, every single one of them was talking like Karen Lewis. Once you take that deep dive. That's into right. the Chicago public schools. Once you see what's going on, you can, unless you're just really just got the, the heart that size of a raisin, you are going to end up talking like Karen Lewis. 
Because once mm. you see the inequities, it's just your conscience will move you there. And so I, I, I applaud you for bringing principles from well-to-do schools together with principles uh, from poorer schools. All right, now this leads to the unionization question. I'm a big believer in unions. I've got coming up this week, I got some Starbucks workers who are forming a union. I've got Art Institute employees who are forming a union. So I'm always giving shout outs to people forming a union. And the principals of Chicago, God bless them, want to form a union. And I, I, whenever I think about this, I go, my goodness, things have changed in the city of Chicago. So, Troy, why don't you update us on the efforts of Chicago principals to form a union and why you think it's important for them to form a union? Take it away. Well, what we're trying to do is get collective bargaining rights, right? We have an association. Uh, frankly, I feel like we're a union, whether it's recognized or not, uh, but we do not have state recognition. In New York, for example, they have collective bargaining rights. And so all that means, in essence, is that the district is required to negotiate with you in good faith. That's all it means. Everything else we associate with unions, that just depends on the culture of the people who run the union. But the legal status of collective bargaining rights just says the district and representatives of the employees must come together and negotiate in good faith. And so we have a situation right now where, you know, in Chicago, the district must come together with CTU. Uh, and negotiate in good faith. And CTU is supposed to come to the table and negotiate. It's a requirement on both sides. Right? It requires both to come together. Typically, it's the employer who doesn't want to come to the table, though. Um, and so we're, we put a bill in. We submitted a bill. Uh, it was sponsored by Will Davis in the House and Selena Villanueva in the Senate. Uh, it passed the House Labor Committee. It passed the full House. It passed the Senate executive committee and right before it was scheduled to go right before it was would have been scheduled to go up for a vote jb Pritzker called in a veto threat um which i think is quite interesting because he sort of positioned himself as his champion of labor and he fought uh he supported C- expanding ctu rights and i it's interesting that ctu is a majority white union right majority of teachers are white and predominantly women but majority white. Principals are majority black and Latino and majority women. Um, and so here you have this majority white union where the governor supported them getting collect, expanding their collective bargaining rights. But when it came to the majority black and Latino principals who lead the schools, all of a sudden he turned into Scott Walker. <laughs> All of a sudden, he became, no, no collective bargaining rights for this group. No bargaining rights for the people who need to be at the table more than anyone. We run the schools. The data I brought to you today, teachers can't bring you that data. Principals can. The policies that they negotiate are about how schools are going to be run. And the people who know best about whether this is going to work... (laughs) Like when you try to put it into play, yeah, you can talk all the stuff you want at this negotiation table, but when the rubber hits the road, it throw, it's a principle and an assistant principle who have to make it work, and they're not even at the table. If they were, they could spot trouble spots, you know, like, yeah, this is yeah, this has a good intention, but it's gonna have a negative consequence. So let me tell you why. But we're not there. 
to advocate for our school communities, advocate for our students, and even the teachers to help them not make a decision that's ultimately going to come back and bite them because they don't have the sense of like how policy in, in terms of uh, implementation and logistics uh, of policy can turn around and bite you in the behind. But we're not there to do that. And as a result, we end up with policies many times that hurt the students, hurt the teachers, hurt the district. Um, and the people who, who run the school should be at the table. We're the foremost experts on running schools, but we're so, not at the table. So let me just understand this. Uh, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. The bill was introduced uh, in the House and the Senate. And which body did it pass out of? It, so we introduced it in both but it got held up in the Senate. So we decided to try and move it in the House. And it did move in the House. And so once it moved in the House, then the one we filed in the Senate was no longer an issue. The House bill then went over to the Senate. And it passed the Senate Executive Committee. Got it. Uh, and that's when Governor Prisca called in his veto threat. And for whatever reason, Harmon uh, would not move the bill because uh, the veto threat didn't necessarily have to stop it. But I know after that threat, Harmon would not move the bill. And what, no, what's the bill number? 3496, HB 3496. Uh, wow. Shame on you, Governor Pritzker. You know, by and large, Governor Pritzker, uh, I've been a big fan of yours uh, since you got elected. But in this particular issue, uh, I'm wondering if he you know, got pressure from Lori Lightfoot. What's your sense? Of course of course, that? pressure from Lightfoot, but also pressure from those billionaires and millionaires who make money when the schools lose money. Like the Fund for Education, the Chicago Public Education Fund, they showed up at the hearing to testify against our bill. It passed anyway. But after it passed, I am I bet a paycheck, I bet a year's salary that those folks from the fund, from their board, got on the phone, JB, you need to stop this bill. It, it is a real threat to this cash cow we got going. <laughs> because, you know, what, what, what we, we're able to do this because we're able to project a public narrative about CPS. And if principals get bargaining rights, are able to effectively counter this public narrative that yeah. we're, and, and expose the bullshit we're telling the people, we are in trouble. Stop it now. Or the cash or the gravy train is ended. And he picked up the phone called uh, well, he, one of his representatives, uh, I forgot the guy's name, his policy guy, uh, called the, our sponsor and basically told, uh, you know, this passes with vetoing it. And I'm assuming... I'm Pass it anyway. I mean... Wow. So they dropped the bill. They just would not advance it for a vote because of the threat of a veto. That's what it seems like. I mean, I'll never know what, all the stuff that happened in the background, but I know there was a veto threat. Um, I know that the effort to, and we had a lot of labor support too. The Illinois AFL-CIO, the Illinois Federation of Teachers, Chicago Teachers Union, all the major labor unions um, that we approached supported the bill. Um, and uh, Illinois AFL-CIO in particular, lobby uh, the Senate pretty hard um, to get it passed. And that's part of why I got out of the executive committee. Mm -hmm. uh, but after that, for whatever reason, all lobbying stopped. 
Uh, so are you going to bring it back uh, in future sessions? That's the plan. All right. And the public will have, and, 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 and you know, just imagine that you have the principals at the negotiating table between the district, you know, you know, and the teachers. And you have that voice out there in the public now to sort of bring some kind of sense of balance and bring balance and perspective that just has not existed uh, in this city. I mean, I, I believe it would be a game changer in terms of uh, helping one, helping the public to understand what's actually happening, but two, creating pressure for CTU and CPS to actually come to some kind of, come to agreements that actually are reflective of the conditions in the schools that nobody understands better than principals. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I, I, you and I have had this conversation a million times, uh, the evolution of Chicago principals to where they are now uh, is <laughs> remarkable when I consider where principals have traditionally been. Uh, they've just always been uh, going back to the fifties, the sixties, seventies, the eighties, the nineties, just adjuncts of whoever was running the show. Uh, and Rom openly used principles in that teacher strike of 2012. He tried in the end when he, he had run out of issues and was looking like the clown he was, he tried to say, well, I'm doing this for the principles. <laughs> Drag the poor principles into the into the mix, and then three years later, he uh, he had his uh, his hacks fire Troy Laravier for speaking out. All right, Troy, um, we'll be talking about that uh, unionizing effort uh, in shows to come. We'll close with this: Are you feeling pessimistic or optimistic at this point in time, at the start of the new year, regarding uh, November's elections? I ask every guest this one. Are you feeling pessimistic or op, uh, optimistic? Do you think the Democrats can hold on to the House and the Senate, or do you think uh, that they will lose and uh, MAGA will return to power uh, in these two bodies? Uh, the way it feels right now is leaning slightly against them. So that doesn't feel too good. <laughs> Um, that's how it feels. I, I don't know what the hell's happening in the general populace, but if you pay attention to the corporate media, <laughs> that's how it feels. Whether the corporate media got it right, who knows? Yeah. Um, all right. Troy LaRavier, uh, president of the Chicago Principals Association. Thank you very much. And I finally saw uh, you moved your arms and I saw your uh, sweatshirt or the shirt you're wearing. And yes, it's very much a Prince quote. Uh, dearly beloved, we are gathered uh, here today and uh, get through uh, this thing called life. To get through this thing called life. Yes, sir. Prince said it all well. Uh, thank you very much, Troy. It's always a blast talking to you. Uh, and uh, be well, and we'll bring you back real soon. All right. Appreciate the opportunity, brother. Be well yourself. And uh, peace out, D Nice. Hey, yeah, you too. You too. <laughs> yes. Peace out, D Nice. That's the great. enemy. Troy is you. Oh, hey, Pritzker. Uh, uh, the uh, president of the Chicago Principal Association and the man he's addressing, of course, is the man, the myth, the legend, pride of George Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Troy back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. And Troy, the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody.
Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.